Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host and fine woodworking editor, Tom McKenna. And with me this episode, our executive art director, Mike Pekovich. Hi, guys. Special projects editor, Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. Web producer, Ben Strano. Hello. And uh, Jeff Rose is mending the camera and trying to keep Ben in his seat. Um, feeling a little foggy today. We're kind of fresh off of a fine woodworking live a couple weeks ago, and then we shipped an issue right after. So, um, But it was a pretty successful show, I would say. It was a lot of fun, man. <clears throat> it was a lot of fun. We came, we saw, we had fun, then we left, and we're going to do it all again in 2018. Cool. All right. Which is pretty cool. But I figured we'd talk a little bit about the live event and maybe what what we liked, you know, kind of favorite moments. Mine, um, I think my favorite moment of all was we talked to a lot of readers, but there was one gentleman, uh, his name was Tim, and he's a cabinet maker in New York, and uh, he grabbed me on Sunday and, and... you know, wanted to bend my ear a bit. And uh, one of the things that, that fascinated me about it, it was probably the most fascinating conversation over the weekend in terms of our subscribers was in <clears throat> back when he was 18 or 17 or 18 in high school, he was struggling with school in his grades. And um, turns out he was dyslexic, but back in those days, they didn't really diagnose it. But he uh, he wound up, his goal was to be a, a builder or a cabinet maker. And he picked up a, an issue of Fine Woodworking magazine, and it actually helped him how to read, of all things. By wow. looking at the drawings and the, and the photos, he was able to get through the text, and then he was able to kind of figure out words. And he actually wound up, he kind of credits uh, Fine Woodworking partially for his uh, ability to graduate high school. Nice. It's crazy. Yeah. I've I never mean, seen that. Yeah. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. My favorite, I had a couple of favorite things. Okay. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> there's a guy there, a young guy, who works at Google named Thor Carpenter. Thor Carpenter, yeah. <laughs> he was very nice. I enjoyed talking to Thor. I think he listens to the podcast. Yeah, he does. So hello, Thor. Hey, Thor. Hey, Thor. What's up? In Seattle. Uh, two, I against my better judgment in my knowledge of from previous experiences i got into a car with raleigh johnson <laughs> uh and this was not just any car but it was a tesla coupe or something some kind of sports sedan and raleigh proceeded to drive it like the madman that he is in ludicrous mode in ludicrous mode <laughs> and then something called launch off mode or something and raleigh the first time he did it he said he looked he looked over and he looked at the tesla guy and he said i think the front wheels got off the ground and he was like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, never a good thing. With, with That's three not people easy to in the do car. With, yeah. uh, with the heavy car. Well, there was actually like four people in the car. Oh. <laughs> you know, Raleigh well, drives like a maniac. Fortunately, the roads up near South, the Southbridge Hotel were, were really wide open and straight away. This was in like a parking <laughs> lot behind like an abandoned factory. I'm pretty sure Raleigh was going to, you know, Shoot me and dump me. I, I, it's funny. It reminds me of a story. Mike, you might remember when Mark Schofield, one of our former editors, had gone out to see Raleigh probably for the first time. Raleigh took him for a drive in this hot rod that he mm-hmm. was building. And Mark came back. He's like, I'm never working with that guy again. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Mike? Any uh, special um, moments, memorable things? I think it's just the overall show. Uh, my recollection of the first two fine woodworking lives we did was, especially the first one, it's sort of like, okay, we're going to be there and all of our readers are going to be there. And like the readers were sort of this foreign entity that you weren't quite sure who mm-hmm. it was or 
what they were going to be like. And this time around, it's like I knew a lot of people there. I was amazed at how many people I knew either you know, from teaching or from past Fine Woodworking Lives or um, anybody that's listened to the podcast. You kind of already know them. It feels like it. So it, it really felt like it wasn't sort of kind of us and them, the staff and the readers. It felt like, you know, big party. felt like you knew everybody. And even if you yeah. hadn't met them, you still kind of knew them. And right. um, it was very, very cool. I was uh, pleasantly surprised and had a really good time. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really great about the location was that everyone was able to hang out. Even, you know, all the presenters, you know, yeah. they were able to go to classes. They were able to have lunch with people uh, willingly or not willingly. Um, but no, <laughs> just kidding. No, they, they all seemed to have a great time in their response to me, um, the, contrib- the, the presenters at the show. But I don't think um, there was a negative uh, vibe in the place at all. No. So it was... Uh, it was fun from beginning to end. It really was. I, you know, from even, well, I did not have fun, uh, un, you know. <laughs> well, I didn't have fun until I realized that the moving truck actually had gotten there with our equipment. Right. And I had then fun I was after like, okay, the moving truck was re- unloaded. <laughs> That's when I started having fun. But, uh, you know, from the, 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 the hardwood derby. Was a lot of fun Friday night, even though both winners, Mike Pekovic and Diame Plotke, Thanks cheated. Thanks very much. Uh, they cheated. They cheated, uh, but that's okay. Well, you cheated too and lost. Yeah, but I didn't win. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't try to hide the fact that I was cheating. Um, that was fun. You know, Hank Gilpin's speech oh, yeah. after the banquet uh, Saturday night was fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, to the Rikon guys giving away basically every machine that they brought with them. That was great. Yeah, that was an amazing turnaround because – and I don't know what sparked it, but uh, maybe the it was just there not to take it back. Well, no, I think part of it, but you know, I just feel like the whole, you know, from the beginning when Renee had announced the scholarship winners uh, to us raising so much money for the Cub Scouts uh, who had loaned us the track for the Hardwood Derby. Right. I think there was just kind of a giving vibe and, um, the Rikon guys turned around and said, Hey, you know, we want to give everything away at, at like yeah. four o'clock, you know, mm-hmm. three hours before the banquet. And so it was great. And they were actually very cool. They were, it was almost like a stand up routine up at the front of the, the uh, banquet. Right. So also, um, I presented, in my cast too, presented all three Fine Woodworking Live mm-hmm. uh, shows. And what was different this time as the previous times was uh, presenters were in the audience of, Listening to other presenters. So yeah. The first time we did it, you, I think we taught the whole time. Oh yeah. Yes. Everyone, yeah. everyone worked. The everyone, whole time. and so you couldn't go see other mm. people. The second time we did it, I do recall that there was you had at least one or two free periods as a presenter where you could go around. Right. Um, but this time, you know, it was you know you had you know Chris Gochner came to mind, and then me, you, and Chris Gochner went to see Andrew Hunter, right. and and so you, the people. We're going around and watching other presenters, which was nice. Yes. You know? Yeah, the interaction, I think, was great. <clears throat> the food was great. Overall, I, I mean, I I couldn't have expected a better result out of uh, all the planning that went into it. So I was, yeah. I was happy. So you know, our we, first planning meeting is next week? Yeah, tomorrow. I'm already working on next year's logo. <laughs> <laughs> we, that's true. 2018. Yes. <laughs> right, so we changed the seven to I don't know. That's an option. I was going to go take it a different direction, but oh yeah. Well, the, probably the mo- one of the most fascinating things. Um, you know, before we move on, but you know, we had Tesla there giving test drives to people, and someone actually bought a Tesla vehicle. Yeah. So Tesla said, "Yeah, thumbs up. We'll come back next year." Yeah. 
So that was pretty wild. We need to charge more. <laughs> they can afford Teslas on the drop of a hat. We got to charge anyway, more. So shop. Uh, so fun working live was great. But uh, before we move on, I just wanted to let people know that we're taking a survey. Uh, a satisfaction survey for the podcast. And if you go on uh, to our web- website, fill out the survey, Ben will, will uh, happily send you a bunch of Shop Talk Live stickers and fine woodworking stickers. They were like a, a hot item at Fine Woodworking Live. Probably not a bunch, maybe one of each. One of each, Ben? Yeah, one of each. One of each. You said a, you said a bunch. I'll send you four gross of each. I'll <laughs> <laughs> send you a stack. A stack of each. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we'll move on. So let's get to question number one. Uh, and this one is from Jonathan. And Jonathan says, I'm currently scheduled to take a class with David Fisher this summer. I have done some spoon carving, but never attempted a bowl. As teachers, do you prefer to have blank slates or a student who has already attempted the subject of the class? I don't teach, so I'm going to leave this up to you guys. Mm. Um, I think it was Dave Sawyer who made Windsor chairs, makes Windsor chairs. And a while back, I heard a story that someone wanted to ask him if he would teach them how to make a Windsor chair. And he said, sure, go make a Windsor chair and then come on up and we can make one. Because only in doing that will you actually really understand what goes into the process. And I can teach you a lot more about that. So kind of to that end, um, don't be afraid to give stuff a try. This situation is a little bit different. Um, Dave Fisher, he was on our back cover and does these tremendously beautiful carved bowls from logs. Really, really nice. Um, but the thing there is that you're using a lot of weird tools and techniques. So if this means you're going to go buy a bunch of things before you get there, I wouldn't do it. Uh, anything that where you maybe you're learning a technique which is sort of odd or strange or, or tools um, you're not familiar with. Yeah, I'm, I probably wouldn't worry about it. I would just show up and, and let him sort of take you through the process there. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. kind of torn on this because I have taught both very experienced woodworkers and also people who didn't understand which way to hold a chisel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like complete novices. And uh, both of them have their benefits. If you're If you have some experience with the – you know the, the the techniques and so forth of the class that's fantastic as long as it's not bad experience like so if you have a bunch of bad habits that can be really difficult to overcome for the instructor because uh especially if they're unsafe and i've had students show up with you know it's like oh how do you use a table saw yes. and it's like you know how to use one how many fingers do you have you know it's like <laughs> uh at the same time, so in some ways, uh, someone who has no experience is gr- fantastic because you can show them at each step how to how to do things, and they have no biases. Yes, but those people are also can also be very frustrating because you can't tell them to do something like, "Hey, go and sharpen your hand plane," and they can't do it because they don't know they haven't done that yet. So. I don't know which one I would prefer. I, I guess someone who has experience and it's all been good experience, good habits, good understanding. Yeah, I think for me, especially when I do like week-long furniture classes, and a really common question from prospective students is, you know, how much experience? I don't know if I've been working long enough. You know, what do I need to know? And the answer is always the same. It's like if, you know, if basically if you have a sharp set of chisels, that says a lot it right. means you know how to sharpen it means you know what a sharp tool does um you know if you can if you're comfortable with a back saw 
You know, if you can, you know, take a block plane and make a quick chamfer, if that's not a challenge, it's just really, really basic skill set with the the simple hand tools at the workbench. Um, and really, that's it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's an amazing amount. And if you just sort of just focus on those basics, I tell people, if you know that, you can take any class that I teach. Yeah, it's what I often realize when I start to teach a class is how much the work that I do and the way that I work presupposes a, f- a familiarity and, and knowledge and comfortableness with hand tools and sharpening. And so when I start to think, okay, well, now you just, okay, we've done all this. Now go prep the inside face of all your boards. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. The, you know, they don't have sharp hand planes. Yeah. They don't, and it's like, so you realize that the, you know, now I start to rethink how to teach. And she's like, okay, well, the first day, what we're going to do is go through sharpening yeah. and spend a day teaching people how to sharpen. And so that's, you know, if someone asked me what class should I take first, I'd say, we'll find someone who knows how to sharpen and learn how to sharpen your tools. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of not, you know, I'm not a, an instructor. The only thing I teach really is baseball and softball. But um, from what I've seen and what I experienced as I've learned woodworking, I found it better. Like I took a whole class. It wasn't a project-oriented class. It was, you know, hand tools, fundamentals with Phil Lowe. So I learned the fundamentals of sharpening. I learned, you know, how to use chisels safely without jabbing them into your thumb. Um, so I think in terms of like if I'm a if I'm a student, I'm thinking, okay, I'd rather – I need to learn the technique before I can go and see Mike or Matt about building something with them because, you know, I know – I should know that there's going to be some steps in there that, that are kind of fundamental and I should be beyond that. But um, anyway – Okay. Yeah. I mean, le- learning woodworking is, I mean, there's no shortcut to it. No. And I, what for me, I've also, in terms of my learning curve, I, as I'm struggling with something, I think, and I'm probably not different from other woodworkers, is that you, if you're having trouble with something, then you realize, oh, you know, I should take a class on this and really kind of hone this skill if I'm going to continue to use it in whatever I'm making. So. But it sounds like a fun class. I would love to do that. Yeah, it does sound like a fun class. Just wailing away and making big chips and stuff. Yeah, it does scare else. me though when he when you see him swing that ads, you know, and like his femoral arteries like just inches away. No, Ben's shaking his head. He was there when he saw a video. He shot a video it's, of Dave. It's totally safe. The, the totally way safe. He does, <clears throat> yeah, and you'll see in the video. Okay, according to Ben, it's totally totally safe. safe. You can't totally. get hurt. With it this. is impossible <laughs> to get hurt. So says Ben. <laughs> Better lawyer, buddy. What you, what, what, what's your email address, Ben? <laughs> All right, let's get to uh, let's get to some uh, some more questions. Uh, Matthew, someone else, writes: What is your preferred angle for sharpening paring chisels? Also, I was wondering if you have dedicated chisels with different angles for paring softwoods than hardwoods. Mm. I don't. I don't have paring chisels at all. Yeah, I mean, I have three pairing chisels, and they are uh, – I keep them at about 27 degrees. Okay. Uh, but I've also found that uh, just my normal bench chisels, if they're sharp, they do an amazing job. And those are yeah, like I, 32 or 35 degrees. Yeah, yeah. my standard chisels are 35, and I kind of use them for everything. I do have one really long Witherby chisel, which is about an inch wide. It's probably 25 degrees. Mm-hmm. That would be my guess. And that's sort of, you know, it's definitely never something that I pound with. I tend to use it just for 
pairing. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, um, so I'd say twenty five is good, but I, I do think, yeah, like I'm all yeah. I think every single chisel I have other than that is thirty five degrees, and I'm doing a whole lot of pairing with lots yeah, of my chisels. Definitely, I pair with my bench chisels, and the, I mean the thing is with pairing, it's you're removing. You should be removing very a very small bit of material at a time, and so. Um, anything that's sharp will do it. Yeah, it should. The only advantage to a pairing chisel is it gives you a longer reach if you're, you know, working inside somewhere. But yeah, I mean, I've it, never had a problem with my. Where my the the three pairing chisels that I have, uh, where they how they differ, and where I think the advantage of them is to a bench chisel is that they are long, mm-hmm. and uh, they actually allow you to have a great deal of finesse and control over what you're doing. The longer it is, you have, there's more finesse in the control of it. And that's why I have them is for that length. Um, Do they not have, they're Japanese. They do not have hoops on the, correct. There's no hoops. They're solely for push. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the handles, you know, the blades are not very long and then there's a neck and uh, then the handle is quite long. I've actually f- discovered recently that uh, I believe Japanese push chisels are set up in a ratio of two to three to two or something. Where so if like the one I remember was like two, it was like the handle was uh, the blade was like six hundred mill- millimeters, mm-hmm. and then the neck of it was you know, maybe 300 millimeters, and then the handle was 900. Hmm. So they have these rate, I think I'm getting the ratio Hmm. wrong for each of those, but it's like a three to two to one ratio for setting up uh, the length of the three parts of the chisel, and the handle is by far the longest. And it really does give you a great deal of control. Is the neck on those cranked enough so that the the blade will stay flat, like the the shaft of the the chisel won't interfere with the... Keeping the blade flat on the surface. That's right. It comes up at a slight angle. It's not like a crank, a true crank neck, but it it just comes up at an angle. Yes. Yeah. And it allows me, like, one place I use the chisel a lot, the the normal pairing chisel, is when I, if I route grooves or dado specifically in case sides or something, you know, uh, a lot of times that will leave whiskers on either side of the dado. And uh, when my chisel is sharp, I can just set it down flat on the case and then just push it along. And usually it's, you know, it'll reach across at least half, if not all the way across the case side and just uh, shave away those whiskers, you know. And it it can do that because the handle is uh, cranked up a little bit. Right. Yeah. So Cool. Actually, a guy I worked with, I think he had a Marple's chisel with like sort of a cranked neck. I said, where'd you get that? I just did it. Right. He heated it up and already just bent it. I'm not sure. <laughs> just yeah. bent it. I just did it. Right enough with this pickup. Ah, this is good. So we're far, really, so good. We're, you know, breathing easy. I'm dancing inside. Lots of dead air. Lots of dead air. Now it's time for our all-time favorite furniture of all time for this week. All right. All right. How about you, Mike? All righty. Um, this is a piece that's actually inspiring. Uh, it has inspired a piece that I, I currently am working on right now. Um, it's a piece by George Nakashima. Um, it looks like a little credenza. I think it's, I don't know what it's described at on the website, but 
a lot of people, when they hear George Nakashima, they think of like the his live edge work on tables and stuff uh, with the sort of big, heavy, kind of rectilinear uh, bases. But I love his case work. Um, it's there's a really strong mid century modern contemporary feel to it that I, I think is kind of overlooked. Um, with a focus on some of his other work. So this is a case piece uh, in Walnut, Dovetail Corners. What I like about it is there are four doors, sliding door panels, and each door is decorated with a single giant sort of Kumiko design. So much, much larger in scale than you would normally find traditionally. And what I liked about it is he took this traditional element and sort of blew it up and used it in a really different way to give it a, a tremendous amount of, of graphic punch to it. Um, and I think like right now, so this was probably, I don't know what, late 50s, maybe early 60s. I don't know when this piece was made. But even now, it has um, just a really contemporary feel. And um, it's very cool. I'm definitely yeah. stealing some of those ideas in my current piece. That's a great piece. How, how tall is that? Do you know, Mike? I don't. Is, can you scroll down? It, it was feet? actually like described as a nightstand so i don't know how big it is like you look at it without context i think it could be like a really big credenza five foot long wall hung six foot long with two doors seven feet long with three doors and so that one has four doors it must be i don't know so you do think it's long? really big yeah it's big huh that's yeah, a i love piece, that though. that base construction yeah what i like about it did you mention mid-century modern at all? Yeah. Okay. Because I was – okay. Because what I like about this piece is – because it does have that – a feel of mid-century modern where it's got this case piece on a bay, right? Yes. What I like about this is that the base feels adequate for the case piece. Like a lot of mid-century the, modern yeah. almost seems like – Spindly. Yeah. No, well, spindly based but like like an elephant on a tiny little ball. Mm-hmm. It's, you know? it's a yeah. tough aesthetic to get right. I'm playing with right. that right now, and I, I do something. It's like, uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I think I really like that. In terms of like mid-century modern, it's a, it's a style that I think has been trending for a while. It's been mm-hmm. trending in terms of collecting for a long time. Right. And it's just now, I think, working its way to woodworkers themselves. And you think it's this foreign style that, ooh, who works in that? Well, every great studio furniture maker that we sort of put on a pedestal and have been influenced by um, George Nakashima, Sam Maloof, James Krenov, they're working right out of the mid-century modern style. And I mm-hmm. think those elements um, are still really fresh and clean. And uh, yeah. it's definitely yeah. kind of where my stuff is going. Sort even of even out, Tay Frid. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. Tay Frid is sort of was designing sort of in the height of that style. Yeah. That's a fantastic piece. I'd not seen that piece before. Yeah. And that's really beautiful. I like the uh, like heavy linen fabric behind the Kumiko panels. Right, it's really nice. It looks like it's walnut and probably what maple or basswood or. Um, I believe the Japanese craftsman actually made the Kumiko for um, the piece, so they so, probably used like a traditional. You, what they use like a type of cedar or something. Th- yeah, so that was made in this Kumiko was made in Japan. The panels were made in ah, Japan. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. Sweet, I like. Yeah. yeah looks like you know something i can actually build too yeah well yeah that's the deceptive part that of is, that's, the deceptive yeah. part. <laughs> that's the deceptive part of what we do I'm not here saying that no in no no to you but no i mean i yeah. know what you mean we make sometimes we make things look really easy yeah. that's what i liked about Kronov in college it's like yeah. oh i can make that 30 years later i'm 
almost there. Right, yeah, because that piece is so clean and simple. You're just like, oh, it's just some basic joints down there. It's a a little bit of a half lap. And then if you don't know that that side is angled. Yeah, that's kind of tough, you know. Then you got to deal with all the Kumiko. I mean, I think what I've learned in the time that I've been making furniture is that the, and I don't know, I probably shouldn't say this, but the less complicated something looks, it could be the more difficult it is to make. But I know that's not true because you have all that super fancy period stuff, which is insanely difficult to make. Very different challenge. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's a very different type of difficult. Yeah, I think the more stripped down it is, the more the emphasis is on form. And Mm -hmm. if that's off, like on the Nakashima piece, there's no place to hide. If that base is wrong, too tall, too narrow, if that case proportion is off and is too clunky, it would just bang. You look at it at first glance, you go, ooh, you know. Right. And to look at something and just have it sort of sing um, is. It's it's a really hard thing yeah. to do. Yeah, that's true. So the proportions in in have to be just spot on. Yeah, you know everything, every part of it. All right, who's next? Right. I think you're next. Am I next? Yeah, go for it. So I chose a piece. Oh dang, that's cool. Yeah, by a guy that I worked with once named uh, Seth Rolland. Yeah, who lives uh, in Port Townsend, Washington, or he did when I worked with him. Uh, and actually the. I was just doing photographs for the, a back cover and how they did it. And it was actually on this technique that we see here in the base where he makes alternating cuts from either end of a board. But he doesn't cut all the way through, and then he can sort of open it up like an accordion. Yeah, they look kind of like wishbones. Yeah. And this is just a, a hall table that he makes or has made. And I, I love how light the base feels. You know, how uh, and how just light the overall the table feels and the curves of the of the parts are just so graceful and elegant. And it's again, it's something that is looks to me, it looks very uncomplicated. It's very stripped down, elegant, simple, and yet it's tremendously difficult to, yes. ma- to make. Um, but it is. Just gorgeous. It's it's simply beautiful, and uh, he does this technique on quite a few pieces. Because if I'm not mistaken, that base, all the light colored wood, and that base from the legs through the undercarriage structure, all of that is cut from a single piece of wood. That's crazy. Yeah, and then he pulls it open. The only thing that's probably not is there's those uh, stretchers at the, the yeah the stretchers at the bottom. Sure. On the ends are not part of that single piece, but you can see how it's just all a single piece of a single big block of wood that's been cut in a in a precise way to create this amazing sort of. Uh, trestle structure underneath. It's just phenomenal. It's almost like he took a board and like stretched it, you know, like ripped it apart and stretched it so all the, the pieces kind of link together, you know, as it tears. Well, that's what he did do. Oh, I thought he was gluing. I thought he glued those pieces together. No, no, no. no, no. Oh, it's from one board that he took cuts from either he, end. Okay, yeah, I misunderstood. Cuts, he okay. cuts in, but he doesn't cut all the way through the yeah. board. So right. there's, you know, like at the top of the legs, you see how it's solid. And you can see where the cut stopped. Okay. And so he just does that 
all the way across, and you see it's at the bottom too. Uh, I thought I, I, I thought he was taking those individual strips and and you know no. doing that trick and then gluing them up. No, no, no. Which no. is, is that even steam? crazier. Does he steam it or anything no. to make it more flexible? No, wow. uh-uh. no, it just pulls open like that. Cool. Now I should I, I I don't know for on this piece. I assume it was built the same way that he built the. There was a table on the back cover, right? And I assume that it was exactly the same way. He could have used steam here. I don't know, but he did not use steam when I, when I saw him do it. And he started from a you know I, I photographed him as he did it. This solid block of ash, and he just made these cuts, made these cuts, and he just went, it, you know, <laughs> or crazy. that one opened up like a fan. Yes, it just, and I was it was like that's pretty awesome. Cool. Did he use a bandsaw? Yeah, he used a bandsaw. Yeah, you know, awesome. just an amazing piece of furniture, technical uh, wizardry. Yeah, and imaginative. <laughs> Very imaginative. <laughs> That's the, yeah, I know. Who, who thinks of these things? Right. Seth. Seth does, yeah. He's a great furniture maker, beautiful furniture. Yeah, there's a lot of them up in uh, that part of the country, in mm-hmm. Port Townsend area. Yeah, there is. The, the uh, Northwest, oh, what is that thing? Is it a guild? I can't remember. Yeah, what. like the North, Northwest Furniture Guild or something like that. It's They have a gallery in Seattle, oh, which cool. is pretty awesome. You go in there, there's all this amazing furniture by like Hank Holzer and uh, – yeah. No, I can't remember. Judson Beaumont? Nah, Judson's not in Tim there. Tim Selesky. Daryl Pert's out there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been so long I can't remember who else is there. But Hank is in there and Hank's wife, whose name, Judith Ames. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, yeah, there's like four or five guys out there at, you know, on like one island. And they all live there and they make great furniture. And there's probably 10 or 15 people in that gallery. Your boat was shipwrecked many years ago. They're After both. a three-hour <laughs> cruise. <laughs> they were all a bunch of furniture makers yes. on a booze cruise. Yes. And they got in a wreck. <laughs> and now they're stuck on an island together. <laughs> Wait till there's only one tree left. <laughs> It'll become like the Hunger Games or something. <laughs> Who gets the last tree? Who gets the last board? <laughs> uh, all right. What you got, Tom? Uh, well, mine... Uh, is inspired by what I saw at Fine Woodworking Live. I, I the only class I really got to see from start to finish was Peter Follinsby presentation on 17th century furniture making and joinery. And uh, he, one of the things that amazed me about his work was he pulled. Uh, I think it was the second, the second example that I had. That one, he did one of the legs on the right or left, uh, he basically rives all of his wood from green wood. And so he had this oak log with him that he just started hatching, hatcheting away at. And I was watching him do this stuff and it was just the way he works and the way he's so comfortable with the tools and the ax and everything. I was like, Oh my gosh, I thought he was going to, you know, chop himself or something, (laughs) but he's so good at it. And his tools are so sharp that the wood just split apart perfectly. And then with just a little bit of work, he's got this four square board pretty much, Um. you know, and it's not, you know, it's not perfectly four square. He doesn't go to that edge. And then he starts doing this crazy carving pattern. And it's just almost, I think all of it was just by eye. Hmm. And he has this, these crazy methods and watching him work his chisels and his gouges and everything to create these patterns with such ease. And then he, he hands it out. And one of the things that I always imagined, I've never touched like a piece like this. I've always seen them from a distance. And 
they look, you know, you look at these photos and you think, oh man, that's really highly refined. Right. But he doesn't sand. He doesn't go into the, any of the carving areas and um, clean up any any scratches or or, huh. or uh, divots or anything like that. It's just straight off the chisel, yeah. and that is what is amazing to me. And then he, you know, he doesn't put any finish on it most of the time. But it was just such a fascinating slice of woodworking, and it's it's so much fun to watch someone who's so good do it. And it's one of those things where we mentioned, you know, um, uh, you know, a graphic punch that Mike had mentioned, these pieces all have it, but it's so primitive the way they build them. And some of these 1700 pieces are still around today, even though they're, they're crudely constructed, right. but he was such a master at all of his tools. And he joked about, you know, someone said, "Hey, how do you know? You must be really sharp. How do you sharpen?" He said, "I don't know much about sharpening." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, you do." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think again, this is another example of you look at this piece and it's it's all mortise and tenon joinery, right? Yeah. It's frame and panel jo- joinery, exactly. uh, construction. You think oh, that's not hard? I can do that. <laughs> to the way that he does it. Now, of course, you know it is tricky to master the tools that he has, but there's so much more involved in making this piece than yeah. just frame and panel construction. Yeah. It's like just think about the the logs that he has to get that allow that. Think right. how straight the grain on that log really needs to be right. to be able to rive out boards that are close to four square when you're done. Right. You know, and and there's so much knowledge involved in what he's doing yeah. that it's uh, looks like oh I could do that, but no, you couldn't. Peter right. could. Yeah, his presentation was so fun because when he talked about it, someone said, "Hey, what if you, what if it doesn't split the way you want?" And he says, "Well, now I've got a fire fire firewood. Yeah. You know, and it's like <laughs> my wood is free. I just go out into the woods and get another log." <laughs> you know, uh, Peter teaches quite a bit, and he's at Connecticut Valley. I think on a fairly regular basis. So if you're in the New England area, I think he teaches the, this entire frame and panel blanket chest as a class. He also right. has like a carving class where you just do that panel and mm-hmm. you learn that carving technique. Yeah, and, he, and he's great. I mean, he, he had people mesmerized throughout his whole yeah. uh, his whole presentation. But I just love this piece. And what Matt said about, you know, the joinery, and, and it, I think that applies to all furniture. You know, you get the joinery finished and you're really only a quarter there. You know, the shaping comes up and, you know, surface decoration and whatever. I wanted to watch his presentation, but sadly, both times he taught coincided with two times that I taught. Yeah. Well, should have called that sick. So (laughs) (laughs) I'll be right back, everybody. I'll be back. (laughs) Hey, Herr Follinsby is doing something great down the hall. Let's all go. No, just another reason to go back to Fine Woodworking Live. Um, yeah. So let's move on to uh, more questions. And this one, I don't know who this one is from. Do you know, Ben? It says Skylar. Skylar. What does it say, Skylar? Right down there. Question three. Oh, I was, I was looking at the wrong question. That's my bad. Uh-huh. I was jumping ahead. Apologies. So how do you make sure you find everything you need at the lumberyard? Do you make a detailed parts list? If so, how detailed do you get? I find it difficult to do when solid wood panel glue-ups are involved. Do you have any tricks to make sure you're getting everything you need in one trip? And that's from Skylar right there. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, it isn't like there's an easy answer because 
for me, that's a lot of work. Um, on a more complex piece where I'm buying a lot of lumber, I will make a cut list. You know, I'll I'll have the whole plan made up. I'll know the exact dimensions of all the major parts. And then I will create a cut list where I'm padding those dimensions by, you know, maybe an inch or two in length, maybe an inch in width, and literally take that to the lumber yard and, you know, start attacking a pile of lumber. And not only seeing what I can get out of what board in terms of how many boards I need, but also what are the really important parts? What are the show faces? You know, where, where can I hide a knot if I have to? What surface needs to be just dead on? Mm-hmm. Um, if I need a, for a top, you know, if I need multiple boards that they have to match in color. And um, typically I like to go to lumber yard where they kind of leave me alone and I can sort of dig through the piles and I'll even take a lumber crayon or chalk and actually mark up the part locations in the boards and then check off my cut, cut list as I go. So when I get back to the shop with seven or eight or 10 boards, I'm not guessing why did I get this? What am I supposed to get out of here? They're already marked up with the, with the parts mm-hmm. uh, designations and everything. And it just makes it a lot easier to then attack the project um, and have a pretty good sense that I have enough lumber. That is always a big issue. Yeah. And that's how I approach it when I am making like something large, you know, but I make a lot of stuff that is fairly small and, uh, I've started to think about lumber in quite a different way than when I initially started to make furniture. So, you know, now, uh, when I go and I, you know, I'll look for an eight quarter board, you know, and I'll look at the edge grain and see how tight the edge grain is knowing that this eight quarter board is more than big enough to give me all the lumber I need to make the case and the dividers, for example, of a, like a little case work box. And what I'm more looking for is looking at the grain and looking and thinking about, okay, well, uh, because I'm not going to use that board the way I bought it. You know, I'm going, uh, one of the things I've started to do more and more often is what a lot some people call rip and flip. So you you slice that th- wide eight quarter board up into uh, thin pieces where the edge becomes the face, mm-hmm. and then I lay that down and glue it back together to create quarter sawn or riff sawn panels okay. that are really wide. And so now the way I, that's how I you know so when I think about lumber when I go to the lumber yard, I think about grain and I think about color. And I think about how whether or not this board will allow me to do what I want to with the lumber. And but you know that's because I do make smaller items and uh, not uh, you know large pieces of furniture. So right. I think if I were making large pieces of furniture, I would go about it the way you do. Um, I think um, you know if I were making it, uh, you know, making a table for example, which actually I'm going to make a table soon for my house and. You know, I would go and I would look for boards that would be suitable for the top, you know, and there I'd be selecting for appearance, right. you know, and then, you know, try to find a riffs on board for the legs, you know, that probably need to be an eight quarter board or, you know, so I think I would be looking at grain and knowing in a sense in my head already cutting that board up and saying, that's going to be waste, that's going to be waste. Uh, and I need to, here's that piece, here's that piece. And then you would, you end up, I'm sure I'd end up spending more money than someone who went and just said, I can get all of these pieces onto this board. Right. I think when I very first started, not only did I take all those pieces, I sort of figured out, okay, I need 
three boards eight inches wide by eight feet long, two boards six inches wide, and then you get to the lumberyard. It's like none of those yeah. things exist. Right, right, all of a sudden, right. the whole plan is blown up, yeah. and, and you start to panic and start to buy a they whole lot of wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to have the big scrap. So. I, well, I made a mistake, um, and I'm still recovering from it, and I think it's what a lot of people do is that when I was buying wood, I would you know, it's so, it's so expensive. So whenever it became available from yard sales, from woodworkers or wherever people are selling wood, I would just grab it. And so now I've got this big honking pile of wood that I've been pretty lucky. I've been able to kind of design projects around what I have. But when I built this cabinet on stand, I had to go out and buy better walnut you know i had these boards and i'm thinking oh, i can make the the legs by gluing it up and i'm like no this is like the my, my piece de resistance so far i can't just glue up a piece so then i went to the lumberyard with something really specific in mind you know riff saw and clean clean looking so i think i'd rather i think as i move on as i'm building pieces you know out of my head as i'm designing if i'm designing i would probably do you know what mike does and i think it's a safe thing to do in terms of sketching out yeah. what you need and, and kind of look, you know, you have to have a good lumber yard, you know, first of all, right. I mean, we're lucky that we have places that allow you to kind of spend a half an hour to an hour yeah. looking through their, their piles. Um, and places that have good lumber. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, there was a place down <laughs> South Carolina that he'd let you look as long as you wanted to, but, but you didn't yeah. find it. It was all pretty crappy, <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, one of the, one of the local places nearby, that I've gone to and had really good luck there um, is that they have a great scrap bin or, or cutoff bin oh. and you can get some really figured wood um, in those, in those piles cool. and mm -hmm. uh, you know, for draw fronts or boxes or whatever. So you can find some real bargains in there, but I digress. I mean, the thing about selecting lumber is that initially you do start, you think in terms of board fee, you think in terms of parts and how many you know how can this part fit on this board how many other parts can i get on there if i do that i think the further you go along the more you st stop thinking like that and the more right. you just start thinking about having high quality lumber at, available to you right and you know and i've gotten to the point i have an absurd amount of lumber and i have not bought lumber in a couple in probably a year and a half to two years at least and i've just been using what i have and um you get to, I think you just get to the point where you're more concerned about choosing grain and color that's right for the part and for the piece as opposed to uh, getting the right amount. Getting right. the right amount. Yeah. You know, does that, that's, no, it makes yeah, perfect definitely. sense. Because I, 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 I think one of the things that, you know, you could go out and make, say, like, you know, Garrett Hack's hunt board, but if you don't yeah. choose the right wood, even, even if you've crafted it, you know, 100%. Well, it's still going to look wrong. Yeah, because yeah. you picked the wrong wood. And this, and the other thing to keep, in, which was you know helpful for me as I learned this more and more, that you don't have to use the board the way you bought it. You know, just because right. the, the Sawyer put that face on it or that edge on it doesn't mean that has to be the face or the edge for you. Yeah, you know, you can. It's it's wood. You can cut it however yeah. you want to, and you can manipulate the grain uh, to get what you need. Uh, through some, you know, just some basic knowledge of grain 
and uh, understanding if I cut it this way, the grain's going to look like that on the face yeah. or yeah. the edge, you know? That was a real turning yeah. point for me is the first time when I said, oh, I don't have to use that original cut edge as the edge of the board. Right. If the grain is running off by a couple degrees, strike a line, saw it there. Yeah, there's a little bit of waste, but now you have a straight grain, grain that's parallel to your work. It's yeah. like, wow, that's kind of cool. That's pretty eye-opening. Yeah. So just back to the original question, it's like, just don't shortchange the front end of things. I know it's like it, time is tight in the shop for everybody, and you want to start a project. You want to get in there and start building. So it's like, yeah, I got kind of a plan. I think I know what I need. I'm going to go to the lumberyard and get it. And then you're in your shop, and you don't have either the right wood or enough wood, and you're back at the lumberyard. Um, or you start to make design changes while you're halfway through, yeah. you know, building. Right. And it's, you know, take your time, figure out what you're making and make a, a really accurate cut list. Know what you need before you go to the lumber yard. However, you have to do that. I think that's a real important thing. Yeah. And yeah. it's also, I know it's hard because I was the same way when I started. Don't cheap out on the lumber, you know, don't be afraid to spend an extra hundred or two hundred dollars to get really good lumber if that's what you can do, you know, because you're in theory you're making this piece of furniture to be in your house for fifty years or whatever, right? Yeah. So don't uh don't cheap out on the lumber. If if what is really gonna look good is a really nice cherry, don't satisfy yourself with ambrosia maple, you know? Uh get the really good cherry, even though it's gonna cost you more and do that. And I like ambrosia maple. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. My favorite thing is to go to a lumber yard or a woodworking store somewhere and they try to sell ambrosia maple like it's curly maple. Like, oh, it's ambrosia maple. It's like, is is that know, the one with the holes in it? And the, the, the weird staining? In the kind of the, yeah, staining, spalting kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. It's kind of cool. I like it. Mike, you're such a <laughs> thorn with the marshmallows and fruit. Yeah, and that's not what you were saying at lunch today, Mike. <laughs> Same goes for finishing and hardware. Yeah, hardware's the, the toughest thing. Don't cheap out on hardware. No. I don't know how many times, like, okay, I'm to the project, here's my door, now I need a hinge. Well, go to Home Depot. No. no. Kind of no. looks like brass. No. Okay, we'll take it. Yeah. yeah. But the greatest thing is, is that you can get really good, like, hinges, butt hinges. Yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not that expensive. And I'm going to say from where? Horton. Horton, Horton Brasses. Horton yeah. Brasses. Yeah. They make phenomenal hinges, and they are not expensive. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the things that yeah, I mean that I've discovered having made those mistakes at Home Depot with hardware is that they're actually harder to install because they're so thin. You know, you can't really. It's hard. It's harder to route an accurate hinge yeah, mortise with right. that material. That's so true. You get a nice, thick, heavy-duty um, hinge from somewhere, and you have a really good, solid piece to work with. It's fine. Find it much easier to excavate the mortise and clean it up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Horton Brasses is great. So they have a limited size of their butt hinges. So if I need something atypical, I go to Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. Really good stuff as well. Yeah. But we like Horton. It's from Connecticut. Yes. They in Connecticut. And they hear a who. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Um, Hi, Ben. You ben. guys think I'm bad in the afternoons. Ben liked that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. Well, Jeff, Jeff didn't Jeff, like it either. Oh, come on, Jeff did. He's laughing. He's laughing on the inside. Uh, here's the next question, and this one really doesn't have a name. Uh, I started working with hand tools recently. I've been honing a micro bevel on my plane blades and bench chisels with water stones, and that's working great. But I'm getting to the point where I need to regrind primary bevels to speed up sharpening. I tried regrinding with a granite stone and sandpaper, and it took forever and a lot of sandpaper. 
And Ooh, the question yeah. continued, oh, and there's the guy's name. That's a horrible way to do a script. Do I need a wet grinder just to grind primary bevels? I still intend to hone on water stones, or would a less expensive bench grinder with the correct wheel work? I also have some turning chisels that need to be sharpened, so I would like whatever system I get to be able to do that in the future as well. And that's from Matt. Simple really? answer. Yes, you need to buy the most expensive Tormac. Well, I mean, once you mentioned <laughs> turning tools... I mean, this is a really, I get this question asked all the time. And I like, like I teach sharpening. Oh, well, how do I do that? It's like, um, well, there are three answers and they all have their drawbacks. Sandpaper is great, very safe. It takes a long time. Um, a water wheel grinder is really safe, really accurate, somewhat slow. I don't think it's that slow, but really expensive. And then you have a high-speed grinder, which is fast, not uh, Accurate, accurate. I tend to get scallops. You risk bluing the tool, but it's a lot cheaper than like a Tormex style. Or a slow, a slow speed grinder. Slow speed, not a high speed. Right, but I mean. Relatively. Relatively it's still to a slow speed. Faster than yeah. a wet, yeah. wet grinder. I mean, like grinder, grinder with the two wheels. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. and then because you can get like the, is it the one way or the Wolverine tool yeah. rest? Yep. I have that for my turning tools. Which is. I think if you're using a grinder, it's probably. I think it's probably the best outfit there for mm-hmm. doing turning tools, and then you have to get a, a different, you know, make yourself or, or buy some sort of a tool rest to do your. Well, their basic, stuff. their normal tool rest for flat tools is fantastic yeah. too. Okay, yeah, that's what I have. Cool. Yeah, I use a slow speed grinder, and I replace the wheel with a one of the softer softer wheels. Yeah, yeah. I, so I have a slow speed grinder. It was like a hundred bucks. I got the two. Norton white wheels. Right. And so one side is set up with the Wolverine jig uh, for um, turning tools. That had to be over 100 bucks for that. I don't remember. Okay. Uh, and the other side has the Wolverine thing for flat tools like blades, right. chisel blades and, and plane blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I, I use that. I use it all the time for my turning tools. Uh, and I do use it occasionally for uh, when I get when I get antsy and I want to sharpen something that needs to be reground, I'll take it over to the grinder yeah. and do it there. Um, and that's what I use. It's just a slow speed grinder. But I guess when we did the review of slow speed grinders, what we found was that nothing y- was complete the, out of the box. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they all, all needed work. better tool rests for the most part. And better wheels tool sometimes. And, and, yeah, yeah. and wheels. Yeah. And I bought, uh, and they're kind of tricky unless you're going to buy a, like a Baldor, which is nine hundred bucks. You know, right. it you know it, it's it's a little fiddly trying to get the wheel to be balanced on right. there. And again, like I think it's Wolverine, which is one way. Uh, it's the name of the company that makes the Wolverine line. Uh, yeah, I've got that. Okay. I've got that. Set also, they're so both bucks for under hundred bucks. Yeah, that's it's a really nice uh, aftermarket setup for a, a grinder. Cool. Uh, very good and. Um, but you can also buy these little things to balance the wheels better. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you can also – Chris Gochner in his – he did the right, review. Rotating, he kind of rotated. But that's so – I did it. Yeah. It was so tedious. It was. It worked. Tedious, but it yeah. was like, oh, my gosh. I'm going to shoot myself. You get a wheel dresser. Do yeah. you put a crown on your wheels? Um, my turning tool one, I do not. Probably not. Because right. it's just going to get messed up anyway. Right. Yeah. So um, – and I don't – and I sort of put a little bit of a crown on the one for chisels and plane blades. Yeah, yeah. I follow the was it Joe Moskowitz? Yeah, yes. Moskowitz. that's what I do. Yeah. So, yeah. 
raining outside. It is raining outside. It's been raining all day. <laughs> so, yeah. Tom's been can, celebrating Cinco de Mayo I can tell, all I can tell, day. I can tell when Ben has like had it and he's like ready to hang it up. Ben, just, he doesn't have enough patience to be working with us. <laughs> Well, that'll do it for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Wait Please spread the word about what? I thought we were going to do another segment, like uh, best technique or something. Oh, we're... did I forget the technique? Yeah. Have oh we run gosh. out of time? Are we out of time? No. It's the internet. There's no Who's... such thing as running I gotta out of time. i got to start writing these uh, these scripts better. Oh, my gosh. I skipped right over it. If you come it's less Friday. prepared than me. It's Friday. That says something. No we've... more no more podcasting. No more <laughs> casting of the pods on Friday. <laughs> Well, let's go back. Rewind. (laughs) It is time for our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Everybody driving on the highway listening to this and think, oh, great, it's over. Now it's like, no, it's not. We're going to take it to the next level. Yeah, it is over. You can just turn us off. Yes. It's really that bad. We're going to take it to 11 now. Okay. Okay, Hit hit us with your technique then. All right. So my technique, I couldn't decide. I was either going to do rip and flip, which I think I've done before on the podcast. Uh, but I think I'm actually going to go outside of the realm of true straight up woodworking techniques Okay. and give you guys a machinery moving technique. Okay. Two versions of it. If you have a super heavy <laughs> piece of machinery that needs to be moved, the first thing you can do is find like four or five chumps. And invite them over to your house and have them move it for you, which is what I did recently when I moved my shop. The other thing when you're by yourself and you got to use your smarts is uh, instead of someone's brawn. You can't buy that at Home Depot. Yeah, you can't buy that. They they sell smarts in the smarts. What did you just put up there? Ben Ben did help me move my shop recently very kindly. Um, I needed to move my bandsaw. Uh, which is a 19-inch bandsaw, big and heavy. And I thought about putting it on a hand truck and leaning it back and rolling it, and I quickly decided that was a bad idea. And then I looked over and I spied the uh, some of my pipe clamps, hmm. you know, three-quarter-inch pipe clamps. And I was like, I've got pipes, and pipes are round, and pipes are like pipes wheels. Are so I only had to tilt the thing back a little bit, and I got the base up on the first pipe, and it rolled super easy, and I just kept putting pipes underneath it, and it just rolled super easy across the floor. How many pipes total did you need? Four. So you always had like three in contact? There was always four in contact. Okay. Yeah. It, it was – well, yeah, at least three because I, I did yeah. have to move it occasionally, uh, and it worked phenomenally. You know, it, you know, it is predicated on the notion that you can at least lift up the machine a little bit. You know, like my jointer, which weighs sixteen hundred pounds. You know, that's not going to really work. It would work, but you'd have to, you know, jack it up a little bit and get those first pipes underneath it, and then it would right. roll easily. Hmm. Uh, so it was a fant- It worked wonderfully. You know, cool. Yeah, that's my technique. Awesome. Rip and flip is a true woodworking thing. But I'll save that for another time. All right. Thanks. Well, you already kind of covered it today. I did, but I have pretty pictures on my Instagram, Kenny.Matt, uh, which shows how I do rip, rip and flip. Hmm. <laughs> We're just rolling along. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Uh, <laughs> um, my favorite technique of all time of the week is clamping a belt sander in your bench vise. Nice. 
I was um, I made the little splayed leg stand for a case piece I'm making right now, and once it was all now glued come up, on now the technique is not clamping the band the thing in there. The technique is what you're using it for. Yeah, I know, but it sounds better. <laughs> um, so the splayed legs, I glued up this base, and of course because the legs stick out at angles, the bottoms are not flush to the ground. And I didn't want to do the whole little scribey thing and saw it. The legs are kind of flimsy, not flimsy, but it's just really cumbersome so i thought huh what if i clamp a belt sander into my vice um, at the level of the of my workbench and i can just put one leg on the belt and sort of sand it down and then sort of rotate the thing all the way around and it actually it worked out very well when i got to the fourth leg of course then i put it on my table saw and it was like a little rocky but then i could just sort of hit you know, the opposing high legs just a little bit until it sat nice and flat. And I could dial it in without shortening the legs over <laughs> than, more than I wanted to. Um, actually worked really well. It did leave sort of a fuzzy corner on the outfeed side of the sanding belt, but I just hit that with the chamfer that with the block plane and it was fine. Um, I had posted that on Instagram um, at Peckapitch Woodworks. But, um, and, and some people said that uh, Peter Galbert, maybe Curtis Buchanan, they clamp a hand plane in their vice and do the same thing, but with a hand plane. Oh. So I thought, well, that's better. Yeah. So my favorite technique is clamping a hand, <laughs> hand plane in your vice. Yeah. So I'm going to give that a try the next time I do that, if I remember that, because it's probably going to be a while before I do this again. Oh, don't yeah. worry, Mike. Ben and I will remind you okay. of this on a regular basis, I'm sure. Right. Cool. Tomas? Hi. Tom, did you also um, forget your technique? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, sort of. Um, well, my, my technique is uh, I recently built uh, a cabinet. And I had, um, you know, I made door and drawer poles and, you know, the post sticks through the, the drawer front. And I was thinking, well, how the heck am I going to clamp that, you know, and get it nice and tight? So what I did is I had a, had a spare block and I drilled a hole through it and used it as a clamp call. So it goes over the, the post hole so I can get a clamp right over the thing and get good clamping pressure across um, the pull and the clamping block. It was really kind of nice. It's nice. I like that. Very smart. Oh, cool. Yeah, very cool. Sometimes I do things that amaze me, but I know I read it in fine woodworking somewhere. I'm sure it was a, a methods of work tip somewhere that I saw. Mm -hmm. So is Good. that a little post that's glued into the drawer front and then you glue the the pole onto the post? Is that what that was? No, I, put the, I actually put the post on the pole first. Okay. And then... Put it through the hole, you know, okay. and glue it in that way. Got it. So, cool. I think just uh, for now on, all your photographs need to have that whale in it somewhere. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I had like <laughs> at Final Working Lives, yeah, I had like four or five guys walk up to me and talk about the bookshelf thing that I made for my first ever project, and yeah. a couple of guys mentioned the whale. Oh. Someone asked me about the whale. Did like, Tom bring his whale? <laughs> well, I'll bring it next time. The yeah. only thing. Anyone ever mentions is they say, "Oh, is that the tool chest you had to pry open with a screwdriver?" <laughs> it's like, yeah, it is. Thanks That's for uh, thanks, thanks for remembering. thanks for remembering. Yeah. yeah. Now mm. I think we're done. Are we? I'm All right. Done. Well, Ben is he's throwing his hands up. He's, he's ben doesn't it. know. He's he's not, ben just woke up. <laughs> All right. Well, that really is it for uh, this episode of Shop Talk Live. Sp 
please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. That's shoptalk at taunton.com. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. And while you're there, please give us the five-star rating. And don't forget to leave your comments. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook. And look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. Oh, I forgot to get my Instagram. Throw it out there. Quick. Throw it out there. What is it? It could be the outro. What's your Instagram? I don't know. Find Tom on Instagram. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> TM McKenna 1945. Then you got to deal with all the Kumiko. Kumiko. You're not recording now, are you? Then you got to deal with all the Kumiko. Kumiko. Did you just recorded all of that? Kumiko. Oh, fantastic. Then you got to deal with all the Kumiko. Kumiko. None of that can be outro. Kumiko. It's all, it's far too. Then you got to deal with all the Kumiko. Kumiko. Well, it's, I'm not going to be the one to get in trouble. Then you got to deal with all the Kumiko. Kumiko. Oh, dang, that's cool. Kumiko, 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 Kumiko. That's pretty awesome.